welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 728. I'm your host, Jim McDowell, and freshly back from Alton Park, where it rained and you had to bank holiday Monday, nothing better than racing on a Monday, I guess, is Richard Jowett. Good evening, Jim. Did you enjoy Alton Park? I absolutely loved it. Yes, I think, as I alluded to when I had that very, very brief chat with Charlie Borman, it's definitely gone up with Brands Hatch as my kind of joint favourite place. As I've said numerous times, I won't keep saying it over and over, but for whatever reason, and I can't really think why, I'd never, ever been to that track before, which is bizarre, really, because although it's a, don't laugh, it's a massive three-hour drive for me each way, Jim. He is laughing. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I can't help it. It's just for one reason or another, it's just not a venue I've ever been to, but it is a majestic place. I mean, up and down, you know, in the woods, uh, hopefully a little bit of that might have come through for anybody that's listened to it in terms of the little audio clip I did of the bikes uh, in morning warm-up because the you know the noise just echoes around the whole place, around the hills. So highly recommended if anybody ever makes it over here for a BSB round and hasn't been to Alton Park. Uh, yeah, so yeah, great weekend and um, yeah, quite productive as well. Good, very good. Alrighty, folks. So uh, let us move on to a little bit of housekeeping. If you guys enjoy the podcast, great. If you would, could buy, could subscribe, please do so. Go to www.motopodcast.com. There's PayPal and Patreon links in there to support. But hey, we understand money's tight sometimes. If you could, please leave a review at your favorite podcast uh, form where you get your podcast and give us a good rating. It'll help us get back to the top of the algorithm. More people will find us. And with all that, Rich, let's take care of one last piece of housekeeping. And this one's on me. I made a mistake. We were talking about Marquez and his Moto2 career. And I said he was on a Kalex when he won his title on a Moto2 bike. That is incorrect. He was actually on a Suter. Uh, What I don't remember, and I'm sure somebody will know, but I don't off the top of my head. I can't remember which way it was at that point in time, which was, I think, 2000. 2012 was was the suitor the dominant chassis or was calyx the dominant chassis so i don't know if mark was on the non chassis that was the prime chassis or which way that one is but whoever knows out there let me know i think the suitor was the more the more dominant one at that time wasn't it it? and calyx kind of gradually sort of crept in and then ultimately took over so yeah apologies i I think it's that way we, we occasionally get things wrong because, you know, the memories aren't, you know, infinitely right. <laughs> reliable these days. Um, no. So, yeah, it happens. So with that, the point still remains that at least Marquez's, the new frame, which we'll talk about in testing, is a Kalex built frame entirely. But they were, u- Marquez was using a Kalex developed swing arm for the Honda chassis at the end of last year. He had that podium in Australia with that chat with that aluminum swing arm so uh, so there was some familiarity that at least with pieces of it and if that particular swing arm gave mark better feel then perhaps maybe a full frame would give him better feel as well so with that correction made let us go back into the news because essentially we're going to talk a little bit about what happened in testing and things post-race uh, and then we'll get into the racing in general. And well, there's a lot to talk about there, Rich, for sure. So let's mm-hmm. try to keep the news brief. Uh, Bastiani did not ride uh, this race. He tried, but he was declared unfit due to the pain in his shoulder. Because I think, did he break his shoulder blade or his shoulder? I'm not exactly sure what he broke back there. 
Yeah, but I'm not sure, but it, it's obviously a long healing time. It's a delicate part of the body, isn't it, there? And yeah, so not a great surprise that he had to withdraw. Yeah, shoulders are very tricky for sure. Um, that's there. So, but in testing after the races, Honda's Kalex frame made its track debut in the hands of Stefan Brattle. Now, Brattle raced, Brattle tested it. He crashed it. HRC repaired it. They gave it to Mir. He got an outlap, and then the electronics failed on the bike. And so Mir didn't really have much to say, but he he was presented to the press. But Brattle was not. Brattle did not speak about anything. But what Brattle did say to Mir was that the bike is different and the feel is different. You feel the wheels. Or to some, I might have paraphrased that slightly. Which if you can feel the wheels, then there must be more feel in the chassis, which I think is what is kind of been missing maybe. Uh, especially for Mir with the, all the front end crashes he's having. If there's no feel, then you crash because you don't know where the edge is. And maybe that's part of why Marquez has crashed a lot on that bike as well, is that they lost the ability for front end feel. And with a squishy Mistralin up front, feel is going to be your biggest thing that you're going to want to deal with. So. Mm. It, one thing that I picked up on that test happened on Monday I'm assuming did it Jim yes Monday because Moto 2 and Moto 3 I think were today or yesterday yeah um, I'm all out of whack because as you think you mentioned earlier on we had a bank holiday Monday in the UK a public holiday so I'm a day out now for the whole of the week until the weekend happens again Um, what I learned was that Alex Rins, who is starting to, what's the correct way of putting this, um, exercise his opinion quite strongly within Honda that they should be using him more, let's say, in terms of the bike development aspect, even though he's in the LCR team, which is still a, well, it's a private team, but it's quite heavily factory supported, I think. And, and Rins is a HRC contracted rider, but this is second-hand information or third-hand information that I've heard, but Rins was told that only Stefan Bradle would be riding the Calex chassis and was very, very unhappy when he learned that Mir had had a go on it and is quite understandably as the one person that's won on the bike. I think saying to Honda, why the hell didn't I get a try on it? You know, now there's obviously going to be a bit of, you know, it sounds a bit play <laughs> playgroundish, doesn't it, some of this stuff, I suppose, but... Honda seem to be doing what Honda do and kind of not making the most of all the resources that they've got, it seems to me. And that, that was a bit surprising. I mean, okay, there's only so much they can do in a day, but if they were willing to give Mira a run out on it, it's odd that they didn't give Rins an equal opportunity because, you know, who's performing better? I think it's clear at the moment that that would be Rins. So, yeah, that was a strange element of the test for me, Jim. I don't know what you think about that. I thought it was weird that only Brada was riding it. I mean... The whispering that I've heard is that Marquez only trusts Brottle to develop a bike. Well, I don't, that's not right in my mind. Um, so what, you didn't trust Crutchlow and that's why he's riding for Yamaha? You didn't trust Pedrosa? That's why he's, I don't want to say working miracles, but, you know, doing a great job at KTM. I do I believe that. 
I don't think he's was threatened by any of those people, Jim. I'm just wondering if perhaps Mir and Rins pre present a bit more of a challenge to his authority within that setup as things presently stand. I don't know. I mean, that's me being a bit of a conspiracy theorist now. But, you know, there's some big egos, you know, <laughs> along the pit lane, isn't there? And people will protect their patch. Yep. I completely agree with you on that one. Anything else for the Honda and the chassis thing that you would like to add, Rich? Well, um, only that there was no Honda in the top 10, which tells a bit of a story. Now, it is a test, but again, nobody wastes tests and they're there to develop parts in order to go faster. So I think the top 10 does tell a story in that regard. And I think the quickest Honda on the test was Nakagami in 12th, if my memory serves me correctly. So, hmm, I mean... If there is reports, as you said when you opened, Jim, that there is more feel from that chassis, then, okay, that is a potentially a good signal. But, you know, there's a lot of work to do there, isn't there? Mm, a lot. Yes. A lot. Well, I think what's going to be interesting is obviously they've got a Kalex chassis. And if Marquez shows up at Le Mans to ride, what's he going to go out on? Well, yeah. Oh, the other thing, actually, that I did read, and... This came off Twitter, so I'm going to assume there's a reasonable amount of truth to this. And again, I don't want to get called out too hard if this is wrong. But the story that I heard was that they, with the Kalex chassis, they ran this trick again where they sent the bike out clothed in a fairing with no aero on it first, and then put the aero package fairing on. And I think that is when Bridal had the crash. So again, quite what they're trying to do, whether they're trying to get a baseline setting of how the chassis felt without aero and then after, maybe a before and after type thing. It's obviously a process that they work through. I'm not saying it's right or wrong or anything, but that was what I read had happened. Um, I'm not suggesting that Bridal crashed because they put the aero on, but obviously it would have felt a lot different. Who knows? Uh, yeah, it's interesting to see how that one's going to develop. But their problem is, is they have so little testing, don't they? So, I mean, it's very, very hard they Honda are going to have to do what Honda hate to do, which is to test during the race weekend in the full view of the public gaze. Uh, that's going to be their challenge, but they have to do that, I suppose, if they want to move forward. I agree with you. So other people who are trying to move forward was Yamaha. Now, Yamaha tested new aero along with, I think everybody had some form of new aero in the paddock. Um, they also had the long style exhaust pipes a la KTM. Uh, Fabio was a little bit more happy. He had, but the... Uh, he says there's still big gains to come from the motor because if you have the arrow on the bike, you have to run the minimum amount of arrow because the bike is so slow in a straight line because it has no horsepower to pull through the drag that's being created by all the flip flip ups, gussets and winglets and everything else. Uh, the motor is still an issue because whatever they had at that one off Mazzano test has not reappeared at all. And they have tried a couple of things. But if they do come up with something better for the motor, as my understanding, could be wrong here, that they cannot use that motor this year because they've already homologated X number of engines and it's a certain design. If the design changes, they cannot use it. So yeah. Fabio is going to be resigned to riding mid-pack to back probably this year and because he made a comment that it's the fact the problem is I am on the limit every single moment I am on the bike. You cannot ride like that without crashing and having problems. Yeah. And um question for you, Jim. This one's been doing the rounds again, but do you think Fabio can win a race this year? 
well, do you think Yamaha can win a race this year? But that's almost the same question, really. <laughs> I I don't think it's possible this year. Um, not on good performance uh, terms. If you look at where they are right now, they're not even close. If Quattro can only qualify sixth, fifth, he he's not going to get any farther up the grid because. Obviously, the KTM's have an amazing hole shot system, right? Because yeah. uh, I, I don't, I don't see it. Anything's possible. There can be a pile up, whatever, and Quattro gets a victory. I'm not going to discount it. I just think the odds are slimmer this year than they were last year of them winning a race. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And you know, you could saw on Sunday the result of how hard he's having to push on that first, well, first few turns, and that yes. is what will happen eventually. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, however, I, you mentioned about the engine performance. Maybe it has or hasn't disappeared, or maybe everyone else has just improved their engines by the same amount or a little bit more. So Yamaha have kind of stood still over the winter just because everybody else has done the same that they did. I mean, that's obviously possible as to why they haven't had the leap in performance from the engine that they were hoping for. don't know. Uh, possible. One other thing that... Uh... Quattro did test was a passive radio that could be used for safety announcements. So he claimed he spent like six laps riding around with someone yelling red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag in his ears. Uh, I'm not opposed to that kind of safety system to where you could give riders some sort of indication that the track has gone red, maybe even give you them information as to what turn their accident was in and give them a heads up at that area. I think that's probably a better idea than trying to display things on the dash because these guys are going so fast. There's not really the time to look and study it um, on there. So I think that's a good idea. And I have in no way, shape or form do I want it to be where they can communicate back, nor do I want the team to passively tell you lap times or tell you that, Hey, mm-hmm. um, you know, Bender is much faster than you in the second sector. Therefore he's closing in on you. I know I, mm-mm. Unfortunately, it's a potential slippery slope, though, towards that kind of thing, isn't it? Unless it's very clearly mandated that it's not for that. I mean, I guess the one upside is that they might at least be able to get uh, early notification from race control when there's a crappy decision incoming on a penalty, um, (laughs) rather than having to wait until after the race. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Foreshadowing, folks. (laughs) Foreshadowing there by Mr. Jow. He's he's the best of this. He's a Shakespearean, if you didn't know. Uh, Yes. as far as I understand, the rules are very, very strict that the radio is for race control. It is not for the teams. So, yeah, apparently I've got a, in the back of my memory, Jim, I've got a vague recollection uh, around maybe early 2000s. I'm pretty sure the Kenny Roberts team experimented with a sort of ship to shore radio system. But they again, they were having trouble making themselves heard or perhaps it was outlawed as soon as they started to develop it. But I'm pretty sure I remember Noboratsu Aoki running in practice sessions in one of those early seasons in the noughties uh, and running a, a, a pack in his hump, which had, you know, the radio receiver and stuff. I remember that as well. I don't remember why they didn't use it. I don't know if it was a it was legal to do in practice, but you couldn't do it for a race or something like that. I, I don't know the details. I do yeah. know that late nineties, early to early nineties, AMA Superbike had ship to shore radios that they tried. And one of the oh. problems, one of the problems there is I rem- ah, man, memory here. This is all from memory folks. I could be wrong. 
uh, that Duhamel tried it, but the wind noise was so bad the crew could never make out what Duhamel was saying. Hmm. Makes and, sense. Uh, and you think about it in cars, it's either it's either a GT style car tin top, right? So the wind noise would be reduced, or it's a Formula One car where the air is sculpted over and around uh, the driver. So yeah. uh, it's going to be difficult with a, with a guy riding a motorcycle to to hear them. So. We shall see where this goes. It's just interesting uh, that they were testing it. Uh, staying with Yamaha, Morbidelli says that the red flags that we saw in the sprint race and in the actual race, and see, I said sprint race. I'm, I'm, I'm warming up to your idea, Rich. It's a race. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, those red flags are a result of the aero overpowering the front tire technology that happens. Morbidelli says you have to make as many places as you can at the start or within the first lap. Because once you get there, the, it's highly unlikely that you will be passed. That is not good for the sport. No matter how you want to slice it, if the riders are starting to say this, then it's one of two things. Either you go back to Bridgestone and you ask them very politely to start making tires again, or you create some sort of a dedicated test that all the teams are at where Michelin brings out a new front, which they claim that they have, and everybody gets a a day to practice on it or whatever. And we start using their new front. You're going to have to do something. People are kind of pointing the finger as Morbidelli was, although I'm sure he was doing it in a reasonably well-mannered way, but kind of pointing the finger at Michelin and the front. Okay. We know that that's an issue, but you know, the aero has developed so much over the last two to three seasons that the tires are now out of filter with the, forces that they're being subjected to by you know other aspects of the bike performance so and i remember oh, i'm trying to think of the guy's name now uh the, anyway the guy that's always on from pirelli talking to simon crafer on the dawner feed for example he has said on numerous occasions in the past that they just cannot get test time with the teams again because testing is so limited they just can't clear any time in order to test this new front tire that's been i think available as a test part okay it's not finished they would need to do some more work on it but they need the data in order to do that so you know they need some people to go out and actually turn laps now i don't know it's obviously it would be far too complicated to say run that tire in the sprints for example but that's you know somewhere where you could perhaps try and free up a bit of time for you know a development like that or they just have to put some test days in because if it is genuinely the problem that morbidelli says it is then michelin need to have a way to get that fast track process in place to bring that new tire to everybody so i feel a bit for michelin on this one that's kind of my thought yeah i i'm not saying that bridgestone could has a tire solution for these aero affected motorcycles but everybody praised that front tire that's for sure so mm. uh you know anyway we will move on raul fernandez of rnf aprilia fame is to undergo surgery in his right arm because he loses the feeling uh, for the brakes when he's doing it. I'm assuming it's arm pump, something arm pump related. Although I yeah. didn't quite understand it. It was very vague. It's just like, well, I have no feeling in my right hand after a while. So I, it could be a pinched nerve. It could be anything. I'm not 100%. And he was not going into detail. They were just going to have tests and potentially line up surgery to correct whatever the problem was. Mm. So very interesting little tidbit there, uh, courtesy of Crash.net for that one. Jack Miller, always not afraid to be a headliner. He says, if your bike sucks, go find another one to ride on. <laughs> well, well, Jack, I hate to tell you this, but 
you kind of lucked into the situation you're in and the KTM made a stride forward, a very big stride forward. And, and you yourself said they didn't figure it out to Porto Mayo just prior to the race weekend, first race weekend that they found something in the electrical settings on the bike that actually makes that bike really wicked fast right now. Yeah. So that's just luck of the draw there. Um, so I get what Jack's saying though. I mean, there's some criticism of, of the bikes and what people are on. Well, then you've got to, that's up to your manager to try to get you out of that team that you're not having success with to a team that you believe you can have success with. So I'd be fascinated to know, and I guess we won't find out ever or until post-career biographies start to come out and autobiographies and so on, uh, just how much kind of, I don't know how technical of a rider Jack Miller is, for example. I mean, some guys, they just turn up, they ride the thing. Others are, massively into the data and all the rest of it and the telemetry and so on i don't know how much useful information jack brought with him from his time at ducati because obviously that was going to be one of the attractions for ktm to bring him across so whether any element of that has contributed to where ktm are or as you say jim it's just happen chance really that the bikes move forward in a big leap thankfully for ktm it just happens to be when jack joined the team hard to know isn't it but i mean it really has come on from where they were last year, which was desperation. They, yeah, and and almost in pre-season that was the case as well. So yeah, it's an incredible turnaround. It is. It is one of the. It's the biggest storyline so far this season. Yeah. And one little final tidbit here: Jorge Lorenzo says that Mark Marquez will get a low-ball offer from Ducati to ride their bike because that's the only bike Mark will be capable of winning on. Interesting. Mm. I don't think there's any room in the room at the end for Marquez at at Ducati. If I'm Tardazzi or Gigi Delinia, I don't think I want that. I why if it ain't broke it, uh, don't fix it up, right? Mm. <laughs> no, she's done. Yeah, thank you. I well, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> it's hard to see him seeing his time out at Honda with the way things are at the moment, and that relationship does appear to be quite thin. frosty yeah on thin ground or thin ice so i mean i keep coming back to this notion and we discussed it on the last main show that you and i did jim of you know uh what we were saying the husqvarna team taking up those other two grid slots imagine marquez and acosta heading up a husky team now okay people will say well mark would never go into a satellite squad and that's possibly true but if the bikes as works as you know the works bike is then maybe he would do it and we wouldn't need to take a low ball offer in that scenario, I doubt. Yeah, who knows? I, who knows? I, I'm telling you, I, I, the more I think about it, the more I think we are correct. There will be an ass bar Husqvarna on the grid. I, I, I just see it. I just, the more we talk about it, the more that this makes sense. And if you look at what KTM's got, where they need another place to put Acosta to let him season out on the big bike and capitalize on the refinement of the bike that they have now, like one more good year refinement would get them. Well, I'm making numbers up here just for this reference point. People, if they're, if they're lacking by two tenths and they can find a 10th, maybe a 10th and a half in the 2024 bike, then a cost on the 2025 bike after a year on the 2024 bike, might be really dangerous yeah 
don't it? It makes a lot of sense. You know, it seems more logical even, you know, just with this last weekend having gone by to see how good that KGM has become. It might well embolden them even further. Than, and let's not kid ourselves. I mean, KGM is a staggeringly ambitious firm anyway and are not afraid to, you know, take big chances. So... I'd be yeah really interested to know what the listeners think on this one, but I could yeah I think it could happen, and I'm sure as we've said many times, Dorna will be champing at the bit for something like that to happen because you know it's it's stupid having two empty slots on the grid. Although Jim, have you heard this rumor about Suzuki? Have you picked no, up on this one? I have not. Somebody in the Motor America round, so it must have been at Road Atlanta, but somebody well connected, and I, you would need to go back and reference. I think. Uh, something that Jason Pridmore said on uh, on the Garage Pod. Somebody reasonably well-connected, bowing and declaring that Suzuki were likely to make an announcement at some point in the next 12 months that they'll be coming back into the championship. Now, I'd find that almost impossible to believe, just on the basis that why the hell would you drop out and then try and come back when you've basically dismantled everything that made the project work? But it's doing the rounds, that rumour. By championship, you're saying MotoGP championship. Yep. Because I could see them coming back with like a full-on Yosh Yosh team in Moto America. I I could easily see that. But I mean, whether there's a new broom, you know, in the boardroom, uh, you know, and Mm -hmm. suddenly there's a change of strategy, and the people are thinking, "Why did we do that? That was a stupid thing to do." I, I don't know, but I mean, just as a bit of context. Part of the reasoning Suzuki gave was because of um, sustainability and new technologies, i.e. electric, and so on and so forth. Well, just in the last few weeks in Europe, the EU have started to roll back on their commitment to banning uh, diesel and, well, petrol, maybe not diesel, but certainly petrol internal combustion engines. So there was this rather fanciful 2035, no sales of new cars with internal combustion engines in them. Under a lot of pressure, I think, from the likes of BMW and Mercedes and so on and so forth, they've now started to hint at the fact that they're going to change that rule or legislation to say unless they're powered by carbon neutral fuels, basically. So you just wonder whether or not this is going to filter through and trickle through to all of the global automotive motorcycle industry. And maybe, you know, Suzuki are realizing that actually with MotoGP going e-fuels anyway, they jumped far too quickly into a aero technology that is by no means certain to happen on a big sort of global scale, I mean. Yeah, it makes sense for mopeds in cities and so on, but we've had this discussion endlessly. So who knows? Maybe maybe they're realising the folly of that decision and are willing to roll back and start again. I believe next year is the introduction of carbon-neutral or sustainable fuels. However, I don't know the exact wording. It's either 24 or 25, and, and there's a percentage content, isn't there? I thought, it was 20, I thought it was 24, and you had to have like 10 or 15%. It, it might be something and then like it, that. By 2025, I think it was like, then it jumped to like 50%, and then 26, it was like 100 or something. Yeah, because there's a new, completely new set of technical rules that will be introduced around 26 27 isn't yeah. there and I think, I think the, it's based on that sustainable and the 100 e-fuel cool. thing is part of that you know sea change now we don't know what those new technical regs will be in terms of the engines uh obviously at this stage that's all under discussion but yeah 
let's keep a track of that Suzuki rumor, and you know, yes. it'll be interesting to catch up with some people like I don't know, Maddie Scordia perhaps might mm-hmm. have something to say on that, or Patterson, I should say, no. Um, she maybe she'll know something about that. I could perhaps ask Matt tomorrow when I talk to him, see if he's heard the rumor. Yeah, but that was definitely something that came up on uh, Greg's garage pod. So uh, with a guy at Red Atlanta. So yeah, we'll keep keep track of that. All right, World Superbike is at Barcelona this weekend, and that concludes the news. Rich, we had an email from Paul Lang. If you would wouldn't mind uh, answering Paul for us. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll read the question out. So Paul, yeah. Thanks, Paul, for the question. So Paul says, uh, I consume and support a lot of motorcycle racing news, independent and corporate. Nearly all sources highlighted serious KTM problems in MotoGP during the, well, during qualifying. I think he's talking about Portimao and certainly through pre-season, as we were just talking about. So he says, with sprint successes and standings this season so far, what has changed for KTM or did the media stroke pundits just have the predictions wrong. Hmm. So, in other words, where's the performance from KTM suddenly appeared from? Well, despite what Jack Miller says, I think they knew it all along, and they simply turned the bikes down, and they weren't going to show their hand until they needed to. Okay. So a bit of sandbagging. I I I do I do I do think there's some old fashioned sandbagging in there. But it, if if it if it is a hundred percent electronics, and what they were doing, then it is quite conceivable that they finally tuned it correctly. But I would think that given dyno time and other forms of testing that you could do to the engines, that you would have had say three or four maps based on your torque curve and other things that you could legitimately do. Now, the other part of that is, is that there's a definitely a very different sound to the bike. And I'm one, I mean, I don't, you got, you got to ask yourself, did they develop their own kind of Desmodromic valve system for those bikes so they can rev them harder? a la Ducati or is there some sort of variable valve timing either electronically done or a mechanical system that they're using to help the bike as well I don't know but I do know the exhaust note of that bike is extremely different than it was in prior years Yeah, because it used to sound exactly like a Honda it doesn't anymore it sounds exactly like a Ducati yeah and I can actually attest to that based on having been at Silverstone last year where well I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this correctly but the Tech 3 bikes were the previous iteration of the engine so they sounded more Honda-esque and the works bikes of Binder and Oliveira at that time across last year yeah they had that much higher pitch sort of raspy angry kind of wailing sort of engine that i really liked it actually i don't know it's probably changed a little bit more again because they brought since brought in this long exhaust so yeah hard to know i mean all the last year khm were sort of seemingly in a bit of disarray and the accusation was that they were just throwing far too many developments at the bike i mean this goes to what we were just saying about the fact that they're very aggressive in their development and they spend a lot of money on parts and stuff and because they're, I mean, they're by no means a small factory but they are a kind of agile, very sort of forward foot kind of 
business, I think. So they just chuck resource at it. And it might just be a bit of luck and a bit of judgment that's brought them to this point. I mean, I remember on the Portimao review that we did, I remember Simon Crafer had said something that either remembered the KTM team personnel or it might have been one of the riders, probably Miller. He seems to be the one that always comes out with the sound bites, but that they are up until like two o'clock in the morning uh, on Friday night, right, getting ready for the sprint, writing the code for the engine maps and changing stuff. And then suddenly, almost out of nowhere, which is kind of Paul's question, I think, from having had a so-so Friday on the Saturday, you know, Miller's stuck it on the front row of the grid, I think, at Portimao, and then obviously had a very good race, didn't win it, dropped back a bit as the race went on. But everybody was thinking, where did that come from? It's just like that in racing sometimes, isn't it? Or maybe, as you say, Jim, perhaps there was a bit of sandbagging going on as well. We'll never really know until somebody's prepared to say, and it won't be this year. So I don't really quite know how to answer that. But I don't think the pundits had it wrong. I mean, all pundits can do and the media can do is kind of report what they see and hear. And MotoGP is obviously very secretive, so people aren't going to tell you if you're in, if they're in big, big trouble. So, hmm. It's an interesting question and a very hard one to answer, I think. I just think that they just not lucked into unlocking the potential in the bike, but they have just managed to find that sweet spot. And maybe it's been helped a little bit by Jack Miller and some of the info that he brought with him. Maybe. It could be a combination of everything. That uh, it just probably is said. all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's very possible. That is a very, very possible. Yeah. There's, you know, there's gamesmanship among the teams. I don't think anybody, I mean, um, not the same, not the same motorcycle sport, but if you actually go and watch a practice at like a supercross, you'll never see the fast guys put one full lap together fast because they don't want you to know what lines they're going to use. Now, if you stand there and watch practice, you'll see somebody attack the whoop section while well, that was really fast, but then they'll never do it again. Mm. So who knows? As you said, we're not going to know, but it is fascinating to think about. Yeah. I'm sorry, Paul. It's a kind of an unsatisfactory answer to your question, really, but it's an imponderable thing, really, to try and grapple with because, yeah, we, we just can't really know that level of detail. And I bet you even the Oxleys and, you know, the Pattersons and all of those kind of famous people that are tapped right in you know the emmets of the world i bet they don't really know because nobody in the team is going to divulge that information yeah i don't think that that's going to happen at all because if it's something that you know you're not going to let anybody else know what you did because they could copy it yeah i give you all the aerodynamic bits that have been copied right it's the same same thing okay well let's do let's do saturday moto gp qualifying and sprint and then we'll head to sunday's races fair enough rich yep sounds good i only bring this up very quickly because of qualifying because of the people who were in the first qualifying session of OGP. listen to the list here bender <laughs> bezeki benyaya rins and quattro are all in that first session that is absolutely amazing yeah that shows you the depth of what it takes <clears throat> week in week out to be fast so that was interesting so Ben Yaya, who had all kinds of trouble in qualifying, I think we could agree, right, Rich? It was yep. looking grim. Suddenly just bang out of nowhere, throws down and goes P1. And Bender shows up at P2. <clears throat> Excuse me. So from there, we would go to the second 
MotoGP qualifying session. There was light rain that was falling, which that caused some problem. Everyone was debating on like, well, how wet is it? No one knew for chance. No one knew if it was going to get, not get worse, but rain harder is the better way of saying that if conditions would worsen. So it was like, are we just going to throw out and go down or whatever? But what was interesting was that Bender and Alex Marquez went out on rains. I thought, I mean, I'm looking at that from the TV perspective going, no way, not going to try that one. However, it did seem as though the track was incredibly greasy from these first little spits of rain that they did have because they were qualifying in the 136s, I think was close to pole if I'm mm-hmm. somewhere Sounds close. Right. Yeah. It was like one, it wasn't a tracker, it was like in the 136s, but they were running in the 145s, 143s on slicks. So it was definitely greasy. There was people were scared to be on the curbs in the paint. That is for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But with all that happening, it was going to be who was the last person on track to make a lap that was going to probably be the person who was going to be on pole. Because at five and a half minutes to go, there were red helmets everywhere. Yeah. Everybody and their brother was having fast lap, and you could not keep up with it at all. However, it did turn out to the fact that Alicia Sparger, Miller, Jorge Martin, Bender, Benyai, Pedrosa all finished in the t- as your top six. That's your first two rows. So you have three KTMs in the top in the top two rows, including so, one Danny Pedrosa, including Pedrosa, who has not been on a on a race situation for two and a half years, maybe. Two well, years. I think he I think he wild carded at the Red Bull Ring last year, didn't maybe. he? Because there was that yeah. big crash on the first lap, which I think, I think you're involved correct. in. But uh, yeah, but he hasn't. Well, I mean that, that was a race, I suppose. So he was involved in that, but. Yeah, he's certainly taking full advantage of A, the fact that he's probably done conservatively several thousand laps around Hereth. I think he even has a corner named after him now, didn't he? So yes, he does. That, that must help. So it was, well, not obvious that he was going to go well there, but it would have been a track more suitable for him, I suppose. But even with that being said, I mean, he was quickest in both Friday sessions, I think, on purely on merit. I mean, nobody was holding back. So, yeah, I mean, Pedroza was on fire. For a guy who was so light, he couldn't make the rear end of the Honda light, or could not make the rear end of the Honda gain enough traction. A, a much happier looking figure, I think. I mean, obviously, he's not full time in MotoGP, so he doesn't have all the pressures of media and all that other rubbish, you know, that they all complain about, much of which is justifiably complainable. But nevertheless, I suspect he's thinking, blimey, I spent all my career, all my MotoGP career with Honda, and it wasn't like this kind of thing. You know, you kind of get that impression a little bit. I think people that interact with him in the pits and so on, in the way of the media, everybody's saying he's almost like a completely different person with his KTM hat on compared to how he was with his HRC hat on. So, which sounds very critical of Honda, and I'm not meaning it in that way, but it's just... um, culturally a very 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 different kind of working environment i suppose it's the difference between ferrari in formula one and any other team in formula one well certainly say a hassle something like that yeah sure yeah exactly all i know is that ktm hiring progressive was probably the shrewdest move that they have done to increase their development i think i might have said that when that actually happened Mm. oh yeah it's a very good piece of business that it was let us talk about the sprint because 
Well, I don't know about you, but I personally thought this is the best parent race we've seen. It <laughs> certainly honestly, had plenty going on. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Yes, it did. <laughs> Miller took a whole shot with Bender right behind him. Again, the KTMs have a launch system that is incredible. Yeah. Whether it's electrics with the clutch or the way the bike is squatted, I have no idea. But man, did those things, like, they're gone. Like I, a, I reckon it's so good, Jim. I reckon even Maverick Vinales could stay in the top 10 if he had one of those things. Ooh, ouch. Gary will love that. That was for you, Gary. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Basically, uh, after uh, Miller and Bender was Benyaya and then Leish and then Oliveira with a good start. But there was a big crash that contained Alex Marquez, Morbidelli, and Bezeki. They were all down at turn two, which created a red flag situation that we had. Now, here's where things get crazy. Uh, Morbidelli would bump into Marquez and then Bezeki... Uh, would kind of bounce off and then he winds up hitting the bike and flies over the top and narrowly misses Alex Marquez in this whole thing, whole thing that's there. Morbidelli then receives a penalty for, and I'm going to quote this, ambitious writing, unquote, and would have to serve a long lip penalty in the sprints. Rich, you are... Smiling, I'll let you go first with this, and then I will finish up with my thoughts. <laughs> well, I don't even know what to say, really. I probably think, like most people do, that, I mean, crashes happen on first laps. They've always happened on first laps. And why suddenly, I mean, just the very use of the word, you know, being overly ambitious. I mean, it's a bloody race. If you're not ambitious, you might as well not even bother taking part. So, you know, you got pinched at... I only saw it once because I was obviously I was at Autumn Park for the weekend, so I was kind of catching up in the evenings when I got back to my hotel. But so I haven't sort of studied it in massive detail. But from what I can recall, he kind of got pinched onto the curb a little bit, so the front went away from him, and obviously then it's kind of like a, a skittles kind of process. And yeah, other people got taken out, but unfortunately that happens in racing from time to time. Did I think it was a you know a long lap punishment thing? But no, I mean I I can't remember precisely what I said over the Marquez incident in Portimao, but I was sort of sitting on the fence as to whether that was a kind of a penalty type of thing, because again, people are pushing on and I have to, that's the way the sport's been kind of regulated technically to make the bikes very close. And so the margins get smaller and small margins means errors will occur. So yeah, I'm just a bit befuddled by the whole thing, Jim, to be honest with you. I am in shock that that is a penalty honestly i'm like okay. it was 50 50 at best to what was going on because if you study it bazeki does have a right to the line that he's on yes he did kind of clip the curb a little bit and that contributed to him falling but marquez also comes down on him now being that the fact that it's a right hand corner marquez should have been able to see or feel bazeki coming that doesn't mean marquez gives up the line but it does mean that it's a 50 50 to me that's a racing incident i'm sorry yeah. It's been said a million times, and I'll quote it too. As our as Ayrton Senna said, if there is if there is a gap and you no longer go for it, you are not a motorcycle racer. That's what they do, folks. Yeah. And on the first lap, I can give you some leeway in it. Now, where I'm really upset, I mean, the penalty is the penalty. I'm not going to be dog. But we've got other fish to fry in this podcast as far as penalty goes. But my complaint is, why does he have to serve the penalty in? 
the race on Sunday? Wouldn't he have to serve in the sprint or the next sprint that he qualifies in the next sprint race? Because that seems fair to me. Because if I make a mistake in the race, then they tell me at the next race, it's not the next sprint, it's the next race that I have to take my penalty in. Mm. So this doesn't add up to me. Like if it's not a race and you say it's not a race, then Mobradelli can't take that penalty at that sprint in the until the next sprint. I just, I, I'm beside myself on that one. That one just makes my head want to explode that you just say, well, okay, I'm going to ruin what happens on Sunday. The two things aren't connected to each other. Just like, again, I, I don't, if you get a penalty for a long lap, and you got to serve in the next one. I don't think those are connected. It's a different weekend. There has to be some other form of penalty that you apply at that time. That's just me. But anyway, <laughs> let us move, move on because there's so much more to cover here. But I have to admit that the race at the front between uh, Bender and Miller and Martin was phenomenal. Brad Bender backing that thing in at turn six, the Pedrosa corner was absolutely crazy awesome to watch. Again, Dorna, let people see the sprint race on the free side of your website because if you were watching that as an armchair person, you would have been intrigued beyond belief. And you would come back Sunday and want to watch it again because what Bender was doing with the bike was incredible to watch. And even Bastiani, or not Bastiani, Banyaya going into 13, Jorge Lorenzo, Ben, the way he had things sliding, backing it in was just crazy awesome to watch. It's becoming like a drifting competition, isn't oh, it? Like, yes. Like exactly. the Fast and Furious. <laughs> I mean, it's unreal what Bender was doing. I mean, Absolutely. that bike was just on the, on the lock stops, wasn't it? I mean, crossed up. I mean, how the hell he does that? supermoto style Unreal. it was just brilliant to watch yeah and it's so it was just absolutely completely and totally awesome uh for that and quite honestly um you know the race continues on i think alish loses the front and he falls off at like turn nine uh there was other you know marquez was now out at like turn two again because he was down uh mirror crashed in there as the tire went on. Um, my question that I wrote here is, are we starting to see the effects of the front tire um, inflation rules? Because there was so many front end crashes. So was this a result of the fact that you had to have a certain pressure in there all the time? And I'm wondering if this is how KTM is at the front, because I remember Matt Oxley's article about how teams were cheating the tire inflation rule the prior year. He was talking to someone, and I think it was implied, if you read between the lines, that it was a KTM engineer and they said, Hey, we've always raced to the rule hmm. where everyone else isn't, including Ducati and Benyaya. Well, okay. If you read between the lines there, maybe this is why KTM is also at the front because now they've had more time on that tire at the pressures that are required than maybe anybody else in the field. Don't know. Possible. Hmm. I think Jim, and again, People will correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure, but I'm pretty sure that prior to the Hareth weekend, I don't know which technical body is in charge of the whole tyre pressure thing, but they did roll back on the fact that that was going to be mandated from this race onwards. Did I think they? it's been pushed till after, possibly even after Mugello or something, but I think they've had hmm. a stay of execution for the next two or three rounds. It, it's starting to sound to me like we won't actually see this rule being applied at all this year. I think there's probably going to be so much complexity around it, but 
Um, I, I hadn't heard that, Rich. That's... But it but it might well be the case, however, that the teams are preparing themselves by running the bikes and the tyres at the pressures that they will need to use when it does become a rule or an enforced rule, because it is a rule already, but it's just they haven't been able to monitor it. So I think I'm right on that. I'm sure we'll be told if that is incorrect, but I'm sure I heard that, yeah, they pulled back on implementing the monitoring and the sanctioning of people that fell outside of the range. I'm sure they pulled back on that. Yeah. So Bender would go past Miller sideways, no less, <laughs> at turn six, forcing Miller wide, which then allowed Benyaya to sneak underneath. Bender would win the sprint, followed by Benyaya and Miller, Martin, Oliveira, and Pedrosa. Three KTMs in the top six in the sprint. Crazy. Happy days. Yeah, happy, happy days, days for, for Pitt Byron, everybody. Yeah. Absolutely. So that is the sprint. That was some fantastic racing in the sprint. It was. Yeah, uh, the sprint, people have still got their, or there are still detractors about the sprint. And yes, there was a first lap crash, <laughs> but having a long race the following day is no guarantee of there not being a first lap crash. As we're about to talk about, or we will come to that will shortly. Come to that, so yes. I think it's more just that's where the technical rules and the competitive order and the closeness of all of the bikes and the riders brings us to now. As we said, tiny margins and you will have incident. Mm-hmm. So we get to Sunday, and just quickly in Moto2 qualifying in QP2, I bring this up because Munoz had a wicked crash, a very gnarly high side. He kind of got the bike on the front end, kind of the back end swapped around a little bit. I think mm-hmm. it sort of ran him off the curves, and it kind of straightened itself out on the uh, on the edge of the curbing, if you will, which caused him to be over the top and then literally running alongside the motorcycle as he then had to let go of it as the bike went into the to the fence there. I believe that was at the last turn, if I'm not mistaken. That, that bike was destroyed. That was a destroyed Moto3 bike, folks. It was definitely there. Well, the only reason I bring it up in that sense is that Munoz had a broken left heel, and he was unfit to race in the race on Sunday. Ah, uh, okay, because I wonder whether he had a concussion because he hit the, hit the ground pretty hard. Yeah. with all parts of his body but i hadn't cottoned on to the fact that he had that injury okay yep so that that solves that mystery uh so uh from qualifying onchu ortola munoz uh fanati masi and yamanaka were your top six now i was pretty impressed with onchu i thought well maybe the turk has got himself together here well, let's see what happens in the race as it started out it was onchu holgardo and ortola out front Followed by Yamanaka and, and Fernandez. Um, Anchu went sliding backwards. No idea what was going on there, but it was a backwards thing where then um Olgardo and Ortola were pulling away at the front. But again, they're never nobody's ever gonna get away in a Moto 3 race because everybody's gonna cl- come climb right back into it. So you had you had you had that. There, well, that was going on. You had a really good, nice little battle between um Horgado, Yamanaka, Ortola, Masio, Artigas and alonzo they were all right there um i guess i should say those were the top six but then artigas and alonzo were catching everybody then salvador had a massive high side yamanaka had a mechanical issue that took him out it appeared as though it was some sort of a shifter slash shifting problem because he was reaching down with his left hand um i'm wondering if you know that's one of the things with these high lean that you don't really think about is that what might be comfortable for you to change gears isn't effective because you lean the bike over so far 
that you can touch the shifter to the ground and maybe it bent it or locked the gearbox into a gear. I'm not 100% what happened, but it was a shifting problem that took him out, which I thought was a sad thing because Yamanaka looked pretty good. At least at that point in the race, he looked good. You had a yeah. lead group of six for most of the race, which was Masia, Hogardo, Ortola, Artigas, Alonso, and Rueda. Uh, Ru- yes, there as well. that's the fella. Yeah. Yep. So you had nine riders that were battling it out. A classic Moto3, I think, where suddenly Sasaki and Anshu and Suzuki all caught up. So whatever was wrong with Anshu in the beginning, I thought, wow, the kid's going to redeem himself. Maybe he cooled his jets and was just looking at the bigger picture, and I'm going to now ride my way to the front and win at the very end. But no, the Turk has a problem with track limits, Rich, and he was sent to the long lap of inconvenience, as you like to say, which ruined his race because he may have had a shot at winning it. I do believe Anshu had a shot. Because it was definitely crazy. But once that happened and Anshu was out of that lead pack, it was a matter of what was going to happen out front. And it was Ortola who beats everybody. So he goes back-to-back, Coda and Hareth, followed by Alonso, which was a great thing. Masia would, then was there because, again, Masia showed up on the uh, Leopard there towards the end of the race. Then Sasaki, Rueda, and Holgardo are all people that showed up there for that Moto3 race. Oh, is there anything you'd like to discuss that you had noticed that we need to talk about, Rich? Um, well, just really, I suppose Ortola is the talking point of mm-hmm. the race, isn't he? Um, as you say, he won in Kota and okay, first win for him in Moto3. And you quite often see people a little bit unusual winning at Kota because it's kind of people always refer to it as a specialist track, don't they? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you didn't think if, or maybe that was going to be a flash in the pan for Ortola, but boy, did he pull it out of the bag on Sunday again. Yeah, so great. He did looked absolutely fantastic. Yeah, so nothing like a bit of confidence, is there? No, there's not. Which is good for him because, as the championship standings now look, Helgardo is on 59 points, Marrera is on 55 points, and then our man Ortola is now on 50 points. Back to back 25 point scores. Against everybody, against the ten for Halgardo and the six for Marrera, for Marrera, moves Ortola way up the class. So yeah. this is—I don't know where this is going to go as far as a shape up of who's going to be there for the championship. But I'm beginning to think that we're going to look at Ortola and maybe Masia and Marrera and Holgardo as the guys that are going to try to be, grab this championship here. But I think Ortola is the man to watch. Especially when we go to France, I do think we need to keep an eye on this. Totally agree. And I I would add, really, that you know you can start to just feel that the days for the Masias, the Suzuki's, possibly even Sasaki's, you know, the people that we expect to be, you know, winning regularly, you can just kind of feel that their days are getting a little bit numbered. In Moto Three, I'm talking about. I mean, obviously, they would then look to move from their point of view to Moto Two. But you know, you got Ortola, Alonso, Marrera. Munoff, okay, he wasn't in the race because he was injured, but you know, Rueda, lots and lots of you know, young, fast riders that are starting to become quite dominant. And in fact, yeah, as you say, Holgado, Marrera, and Ortola, top three in the championship. So, yeah, one honorable mention, Jim, must sure. go to Nepa, who finished 15th with a broken ankle, I think, which was sustained yeah. in the last corner at Kota. So he really gritted his teeth and you know, bore down on the pain side of things. and to get to score a point under those circumstances because he was being helped on and off the bike 
So, you know, in that condition, it was pretty hot. Frantic race with that amount of pain to get a point. Yeah, good on the lad. Particularly with his teammate winning the last two races as well. So it's obviously a tough position for him to be in. But uh, that was very creditable. Hmm. All right, let's move to Moto2. Yeah. Moto2 qualifying. uh, Agura got out of Q1. Starting to look more like the old Agura that we were seeing there. Roberts got out as well. Um, Honorable mention to Sean Dylan Kelly. He just missed the cut to go into Q2. So I was proud of of Roberts and uh, Sean Dylan Kelly as an American I was definitely feeling it there. Uh, the second qualifying, we had Arenas was down at 12. That was a big off that he had. Um, the one thing I noticed here, and this is just an observation uh, across all classes, was when people were crashing, whether it was Moto2, Moto3, or MotoGP, all the bikes were into fencing or tire barriers. Every single one of them that I, I, okay. I won't say every single one of them, but it sure seemed like every crash had a bike going all the way to the fence. Mm. So, and I might be just conflating this in my mind, but it does seem to be that we're seeing a lot more bikes getting, you know, really, really heavily damaged as well as in, you know, almost skip kind of levels of damage where there's not much salvageable on them. Some really big crashes. Now I, what I don't know and we'd need to go back and look at the last couple of seasons, I suppose, by way of comparison. You know, we know the MotoGP boys are going very, very fast compared to the last, say, five, ten years. In terms of relative lap time speed, I don't know how much faster, say, Moto3 and Moto2 are going, but obviously they would have got faster over that period of time as well. So as the speeds go up, so does the energy. Uh, And when you crash, there's a lot of energy to deal with. So, yeah, the two things are obviously intrinsically linked, aren't they? Yeah, that's true. Some yeah. big crashes going on at the minute. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I my fear here is that you wind up with a bike that vaults into stands. I, completely unrelated, but at Porto Mile they had a car, a test for cars. Oh yeah, I saw and this. The, yeah. the car wound up in the stands. I mean, thank God nobody was there, right? But you can imagine that there is that possibility, and it's maybe a more real possibility than what we're giving it credit for. As you mm. said, I, I don't, I just, I don't want to see that. I, I, I understand. I want to be close to the track too. I really do. And I want to be able to see and watch things with my eyes and not through a set of binoculars or something like that, or a big screen TV. But I do not want people to, I, I don't want to repeat if like, you know, what was it? 58 or 59 Le Mans and the Mercedes goes in the crowd and stuff like that. I, I do not want to see this at all and I, I don't know what the solution is and i'm not suggesting that we need to do anything right now i just it's an interesting thing to i know to... you know the gp class is, is the top flight but we, we can all understand and accept that that's the case and they are by and large the quickest bikes that you will encounter on a racetrack okay you've been to um motor america races in the last year jim Obviously, I've been to lots of BSB races just back from Alton. You know, at those races, okay, the bikes are going slower, but they're not exactly going slow. And, you know, happily, uh, you know, I say this as a massive enthusiast track side, you know, you are pretty close to the track. So the possibilities of a, you know, a significant accident are obviously ever present. And I don't know that they're that much more likely to happen in MotoGP, although they are going faster. 
and you can tell me the physics about you know energy time speed and blah 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 and it's all exponential and etc etc but i don't know it's it, i'm just trying to reconcile the problem with other forms of sport which are not quite as fast but they're equally as dangerous and you are much closer to the action both as a competitor and you know as a spectator certainly so it's uh yes again it's a bit of a tricky one to solve that and you know certainly you know the bsb tracks they're safe but they ain't gp homologated tracks that's for sure so you know big accidents take place there as well i think the other reason that i'm kind of scared about this is several years ago back when uh indy was at or sorry when moto gp was at indy they used to run the indy mile in conjunction on saturday night and one year we were all there in the grandstand a crash happened going into turn one now a dirt track bike is only going maybe 110 uh, 120 maybe in a straight line and the crash happened to where a handlebar dug in now that caused the bike to flip now bike just pure circumstance pure happenstance it started bouncing end over end on its tires gained energy and vaulted what i believe to be somewhere around a 25 to 30 foot high fence and landed just in front of a tractor tram that was hauling people in wagons around the fairgrounds. Mm. So it's not if yeah, you think if you think happens. it's if you think it's impossible, folks, it's not. It, it, it can happen. Yeah. And so just so you're the energy is one half mb squared, just because I know and I can tell you that, Rich. So yes, I knew I knew you were going <laughs> to check that at me, yeah, and I just knew it was coming. Yeah. I suppose the other thing about bikes, you know, my point about, I mean, a good example recently, Jim, right in front of you when. Suzuki crashed at Kota you know that bike was in a number of pieces wasn't it at the end mm. of that crash and you know I think it's probably it's a bigger problem if bikes crash so heavily that they start to disintegrate because then you will get errant wheels going at high velocity god knows where and bouncing off things and then you know catapulting back into places so that's a worry I mean we aren't at a stage yet where you need like tethers on the wheels like a la Formula One but you know, trouble is it takes a nasty incident to shine a light on changes that need to be made, but we don't want that kind of light being shone on the sport full stop, do we? For no. any reason, let alone, you know, potential serious injury or worse. So, yeah, it's a, it is a worry. And you're right. I mean, a number of commentators have said, you know, air fencing appearing on corners now where you just never, ever saw it or needed it before. So yes. they do... I will be asked, so I don't know if we mentioned earlier on, but I'm having the chat with Matt Burt tomorrow. One of my questions to him is going to be, you know, are, are the bikes getting too fast again? Are we kind of at the end of the 990 formula where, you know, they brought the 800s in? Okay, we won't get into that now, but, you know, because law of unintended consequences and everything, but, you know, they needed to slow the bikes down then. Are we, are we arriving back at that point again now? I think it's a fair question. Yes, I agree. All right, let's get back to the racing. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yes, we always diverge here, and I didn't mean to yeah. hijack the conversation, but I felt it was something that we needed to cover. Yeah. Uh, in second qualifying session, Lowe's would get the pole. It was a great lap to beat Acosta. I really thought Acosta had this pole locked up. Lowe's pulled something out that was absolutely magical. Um, then it was Dixon Lopez Agura who came out of the first qualifying session, and about a sorry, I believe, was there as well. Okay, so the Moto2 race. At the beginning, Delaporta had some kind of a problem. I think he just stalled the bike off the grid, potentially, because they did get it started, and he did start out of that. Uh, Acosta got a 
brilliant start. He was right there. Lowe's was behind him, then Lopez, then Arbolino went around the outside to gain four to fourth because Arbolino had a, was started very far down in the pack in qualifying. He started 10th um, to believe, believe it or not, uh, was there. But what happened then was that Lowe's got by Acosta and it was see ya, pal. Acosta <laughs> had absolutely nothing for um, Sam Lowe's and Sam Lowe's rode a great race to win. I was happy to see Sam win after everything that's happened to him, uh, injury wise, recovery, et cetera, all that. I know you probably, he's a, he's a Brit. I'm sure you know all the details of it all rich. Um, so chime in if you want, but it was a great race to see him win. I think the, you know, with Sam Lowe's, there are just those maybe not odd occasions because he has done this moderately regularly i suppose over the course of his moto 2 career but on his day he's unbeatable when he's in that kind of run you can't touch him obviously his problem is that he doesn't have those nearly often enough to pull it together for a championship campaign or he hasn't managed to do that at least for several seasons now but yeah i mean he's stuck it on pole by thick end of 0.6 of a second which you know is a Nothing. <laughs> uh, well, it's a huge margin in Moto2 terms, isn't it? But it's a tiny number, but it's significant in that sense. So, yeah, and as you say, Jim, I mean, he just was gone. And I think Acosta probably realised fairly early on that that was not a fight he was going to win. And actually, in fairness to Acosta, probably thought, right, I'll take the points, which is what he needs to do. Because his battle is with Arbolino this season. That is correct. As things stand. Yep. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, Acosta did try to run Lowe's down. Every time Acosta put in a better lap, Lowe's just went faster again. So, again, controlled race by Lowe's. Very good race by Lowe's. An yep. educated, wise head on young shoulders race by Acosta. We have seen the kid turn a corner here, I believe. His racecraft, take the points on offer, bring the bike home, is shown up now and is very prevalent in his races so far this year in moto two so everybody else arbolino was having some severe trouble trying to get around lopez that was he spent most of the race trying to get around lopez yeah. which was fun to watch because that's where the battle was uh vietti was down at turn 10 that was a big hit he took uh again to the air fence with the bike uh, both him both rider and bike into an air fence at turn 10 thankfully not together in the sense yes. that the bike followed him in because that would have been unpleasant mm-hmm. um Agura came to join and play around, play the battle, play in the battle that was with Arbolino um, and Kinnett. That was really good time there. Uh, Shonda and Kelly was down, but basically as it wound up at the end, um, Agura then, that's the last thing I, I have as a note to, to, to talk about is Agura was down at turn one. Now Arbolino had gone by Agura and they too had been trading places, but when Arbolino slid by at turn one this time, I think Agura maybe misjudged the braking a little bit or didn't think or thought that Arbolino was going faster than he was, but he wound up nicking the front. His Agura's front tire nicked the back of Arbolino's rear tire, and that put um, Agura down into the tire, into the gravel trap. Um, Agura didn't think that it was an ambitious move because Agur just got up and sort of walked away and didn't seem to care. Stewart's agreed that it was not an ambitious move. So therefore no penalties were were uh despite the that fact time. that he made contact 
Yes. So let's hold that thought because that's pertinent. Yes. Uh, again, Richard foreshadowing because he is a thespian. And uh, basically, the race finished out with Lowe's, Acosta, Lopez, Arbolino, Canet, and Dixon. There is your race as it wasn't a classic Moto Two no. race, was it? Not much it was, racing. There was not much there. And the Agura part was the thing I was watching the most because I felt that I thought that was intriguing just to see where he was going to be in the in this race. Uh, out front was a bore, to be quite yeah. honest with you. It was definitely a subpar Moto Two race. And I have no idea why. Sometimes I think those just happen. The one note that I wrote and kind of underlined in red afterwards was Agura's drifting abilities. Because again, he yes. was just oh, floating that bike around. Unbelievable. And I can't wait to see him on a MotoGP bike. Unfortunately, it'll be a Honda, but hopefully it'll be a more sorted Honda than it is at the moment. And maybe, you know, again, maybe they do need somebody like him, young, you know, un bothered by you know years on other motor gp bikes or whatever just to ride around a thing but again he has otherworldly skills and looked very much brad binder-esque i thought in the way he was drifting that bike around okay he crashed but he's coming back to some semblance of full fitness now isn't he it was samurai slide i'll i'll uh laurie hago wasn't it yeah. you know, hago was a samurai slide i, I had kia rio in my head but that's that's only because of that amazing lap that donington park in the wet when the bike isn't even straight mm. google that one people if you've never seen it kia rio donington park rain ride in uh, rain qualifying that is one of the best qualifying laps you'll see from anybody guaranteed uh on to the road on to moto gp the race again the ktms that the lights go out are gone <laughs> banyaya <laughs> is trying to keep banyaya is literally trying to keep up because the ktms are literally gone we wind up with another first turn incident. It involved Quattraro, all of, or sorry, not a first turn. It was turn two because the it was turn one, the first race in the sprint. But it was turn two in the second race. So we made it just that little bit farther around the track, I believe. Was it? Or was, I thought it was turn two in both races. Wasn't was it, it turn two in both races? I, f- oh, I might okay. get called out on this. I f- think uh, it was. I, I thought we got. Was. I thought we got farther down the road, but that's a. But it, it, there was two red flags by crashes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the key point. Yeah. Key point. This is the key point. The key point is that Quattraro is down, Oliveira is down, and Bezecchi is down. If you watch the watch it, Bezecchi comes up the inside, hits Quattraro, who gets squeezed because uh Oliveira was on the outside of Quattraro. They all go into the gravel trap. Immediately, I had concerns for Quattraro's condition because I believe he was unconscious he looked to be unconscious the way he, he was looked, just lying in the gravel yes yeah. he looked to be very unconscious now subsequently in twitter if you follow um mr patterson there were he said that he talked to people who were at the turn and that quattro was indeed unconscious subsequently somebody else had video I don't know where the video came from, but it was video of the corner personnel and medical staff attending to Quattraro, appearing to tap his helmet as if to try to revive him or find out what was going on with him. Now, regardless of what happened, that was a very scary incident. Now, immediately the medical safety team was there and they were looking after everybody because the race was red flagged. Subsequently, you have... I believe it's five minutes to return to the pits with your motorcycle. 
to be able to continue in the race. Quattraro somehow miraculously was up and back to the pits and able to use his spare bike because we did not have three-quarter distance, so it was as if the race never happened and we reduced the length of the race by one lap. Yeah. If Quattraro was then deemed fit to race, that was what the next thing that happened was Quattraro was deemed fit to race. Okay. Did you go through a concussion protocol? If it was, I, I, but by, by all accounts of what I know, uh, and I'm going by what is done for youth soccer, which is not MotoGP from professional level, but you have the kids are taken away from the field to the quietest area that's possible, and they're sat down, and, and one of the coaches has to be with them, or if there happens to be medical they will watch them for differences of what happens in mood or swing. And they look for and ask if there's headaches, if they see stars or other things like that, that is at least 12 to 15 minutes. So with Quattro was not unconscious. He was past fit. Now people have said that the, who I don't remember who the doctor actually is for MotoGP. Now he arrived in Quattro's pit box with no medical equipment, to speak of, only his hands in his pocket, talked to Quattraro and deemed him fit. I would think you would at least have looked in eyes. You would have something. Again, this is really weird here. I'm not going to dwell on, you know, Quattraro is a big boy. He can do what he wants to do. But again, there's some reasonable thing that has to happen where there's a consistent concussion protocol if we believe a rider to have been unconscious. And I don't think it's too much to say that if you were knocked unconscious at any point, you are done. You're not racing again until tomorrow or if it would happen in a sprint or you're not racing again until the next weekend when they have an event. I'm not sure yeah. what your feelings are with that, Rich. But Well, I think that protocol exists, Jim. It's just that they never apply it. I think that's the problem. Well, uh, like people, they get, apply- people get hoodwinked into believing that people are fine when they should be getting more daily checked. Because I think, uh, again, I mean, OK, you know, the likes of and it's not just Simon Patterson, but obviously he's very, very vocal around some of these issues. And fair enough. Um, but he was saying that it appeared to be the case that Bezeki had been knocked out in the crash the previous day as well and was back on the bike straight away again. So, uh, but well, I mean, we've repeatedly seen and heard about this problem and it just never seems to get solved. So I don't know. I mean, my attitude on it is, is if, you know, if a rider says he wants to ride, well, okay, that's your choice really. But the problem is, is if you then subsequently black out as a an aftershock of having been knocked out, let's say, or you or you you're nauseous and you vomit into your crash helmet. You know, you could cause a massive accident, A, to yourself again, and B, to the people around you. So that's, I think, the the bigger worry with all of this stuff is that, you know, riders have to be sort of saved from themselves quite often. Um. So, yeah, but I don't quite understand. Maybe somebody can explain it to us on an email, but how Quattraro got back, because my understanding was you had to get back on the bike that you had started the race on within that time period in order to be allowed back out again. If you just arrive back in the pits on your own, I didn't think that was the way that the rule worked, but it certainly doesn't work like that in some other race series. Um, I'm sure and I could check this with somebody like Greg Haynes, but I'm very, very sure in world Superbike you must return on the bike within that period of time. If the bike is left out on the track, you're done. So I think that's the rule, but happy to be educated on that. But yeah. anyway, I mean, 
what did you think about the crash itself though in terms of the circumstances of it because we haven't mentioned Oliveira right. who's unfortunately the one that came out worse on this yes so Quattro, uh, Quattro, uh Oliveira was diagnosed with a dislocated shoulder left shoulder because they had him and holding that arm you could see the pain in Oliveira's face so Oliveira poor Oliveira has basically got a big target on his back and apparently everybody's trying to hurt him because they're scared <laughs> of him on Aprilia if he's healthy that he may win everything that's the conspiracy theory that I'm going to go with I'm kid, folks. That's just me trying to be funny. Um, but we found out only seconds before the race restarted, Quattro was going to be issued a long lap penalty for his riding. What the hell? Pardon my language, folks. How on this planet does the guy who's in the middle get a penalty? I, I, I cannot fathom that one at all. Okay, if it was ambitious riding yesterday, that's ambitious penalty calling on Sunday. Fair enough, right? Uh, yeah. That was ridiculous. Absolutely, positively ridiculous. I mean, he went. He was going into a closing gap. So, I mean, maybe race he, direction. He was... Say, I mean, why they didn't say he was being overambitious by breaking too late? I don't know. Maybe they did say that. I mean, I've kind of just lost track of all of this now because there's so much you know, anarchy swirling around. It's hard to separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of different <laughs> incidents being handled in different ways. I mean, I like, you alluded to this earlier on, Jim. You know, I used I thought that there used to be or that there was kind of a bit of a let on lap one because if an incident was going to occur, lap one is when it was going to happen. And I know, for, for example, that at, say, the Red Bull Ring, where they have that massive runoff area at the top of the hill at, on turn one, you routinely see people going into that on lap one because it's, again, people are bunched up. People don't get penalised for that in the way that they would do if they did it on the last lap. And I, again, I just thought there was a bit more leeway, to use your word from earlier on, in terms of stuff going down on the first lap because it's hectic. But that seems to have evaporated in the last year or so, which I don't think is helpful. Uh, can I just say something? Because this ahead. has been forming in my mind for a, a little while now. Because obviously, again, and even louder now, there are calls for Freddie Spencer and the other race stewards to to be taken out, replaced with other people. And whilst that might solve some of the problem, I don't actually think it solves the problem at all, because I, although, as we're going to talk about in a minute with a couple of the other decisions that came up <laughs> or non or decisions that didn't come up, although we're going to argue the whys and wherefores of those, I, I'm going to take the position of giving a little bit of leeway to the stewards on this one, because, you know, they have all these different cameras and they know the rules you know, infinitum sort of thing or in massive detail. So it may well be the case that the decisions that they're making are grounded in factual application of the rules. My problem is the rules. We've just got too many rules. You know, it's it's a motor race. A little bit of contact is okay, or always has been up until the last few years. It's what happens. There's a difference between making an ambitious but you know judged pass and having a bit of contact compared with just you know doing a you know brain out torpedo job those two things are very different and i think they are very easy to spot and legislate about and to penalize if those sorts of things happen but where we are at the moment is riders will be just well riders are afraid to, to pull a pass that's going to be the issue that we're going to have and you know at a time 
there's, there's such a sort of paradox between what Dorna as the commercial rights holder and the sort of the publicist of the series are trying to do in terms of exciting racing and the rules which are trying to stop people from racing. The two things are completely at odds with each other at the minute at a time when audiences are declining and Dorna's grappling with this problem of how to get, you know, more fans, younger fans, more female, all these different things. Well, you know, we've got a hell of a spectacle, but they keep ruining it or disrupting it fracturing you know things by you know this over regulation of every last little thing so for me yeah we can bitch and moan about freddie and the other guys or whose names i don't know but freddie's obviously the key person in all of this that people know it might well be that he's doing a, a really good job you know his, his job is to apply the rules and i think people just need to step back and say right okay we've got a bit of a problem here we don't want to make the sport dangerous that's not the intention but equally it is a sport. It's meant to be a race. So let's allow them to race. And if people do stupid, dangerous things on purpose, which let's face it, that hardly ever happens because particularly in bike racing, as opposed to car racing, if you create an accident, you're just as likely to get injured in it as the person that you're doing it to. Whereas in car racing, you might argue that's not necessarily quite so cut and dried. But I just think that's where we are, Jim. And yeah, it's just hopeless at the minute. So I did see on Twitter that Freddie Spencer was going to address the riders at Le Mans for the very first time. Yeah, I mean, that is yeah, a shocker, really. That it, and a lot of the disappointment and the frustration is around the fact that race direction is kind of totally unreachable, you know, unaccountable for the decisions that it made, or doesn't explain the reasons for their decisions. So that might be one small step that they could take to try and sort of alleviate some of the, you know, teeth gnawing that's going on at the moment, just about everywhere you happen to look, whether it be podcasts, written media, just everything. It's just, we're not talking about the racing, we're talking about the bloody decisions, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, so, right so the Quattro start, got a long lap. Yeah, I was trying to get back to Yes, uh, Quattro has the long lap apply, uh, given to him. Okay. It's another start. KTM's blast out, and they're out front again. It looked like a repeat of the sprint because it was uh, Bender and Miller. Uh, Martin was in there, Benyai, and Aleish was coming with them. Rins falls down. Mir falls down. Basically, all the Hondas fall down. There's some kind of a nursery rhyme or something in there somewhere, I think. Then it was just that same battle we had again. Bender on Miller. Miller back on Bender. But, hey, Benyai is in there as well. Uh, Martin was in there. Miller was deep defending, and uh, Benyaya went by, and Martin went by. You know, that was a little aggressive, they said, but it was not ambitious. So I'm not sure how Miller gets away with not being ambitious. He gets away with being aggressive, but not ambitious. I, Again, this is just absolutely mind-numbingly ridiculous here. Uh, then Quattararo had to do the long lap penalty again, because he didn't do it correctly. Everybody blew up and went nuts over this one. I'm sorry. This one, the Stewarts have correct. It states you cannot touch the white lines while taking the long lap penalty. Clearly, not by millimeters, by inches, Quattraro is over the line and clearly he had to had to he should have been told and he was to take another long lap cuz he didn't do it correctly 
Rich, do you, how do you see it? I see exactly the same. You know, he went over the white line and it's very clear that that is not adhering to the rule of the long lap. Again, the argument is, should he have had the penalty in the first place? That's the pertinent question, not whether the long lap should have been reapplied, because it should have been, because he clearly broke that rule. Again, you can argue about the rule if you want, but I don't think it's unreasonable to say if you have a long lap, you know, you have to take it within a set of tram lines. Some Otherwise, people will start cutting it or taking the faster route out and trying to make some advantage of it. So I don't have a particular problem with that rule. My beef is with the fact that he had the penalty in the first place. I agree. Back to the racing action, Ben Yaya then picked up Miller. Again, it was, I thought, wow, that's a ambitious move there. Well, this time it was an ambitious move because the stewards said, you must give one place back to Miller. This is in the context of time when Bender was getting away. Miller was holding up Ben Yaya. Ben Yaya forced the issue to get by because Bender was getting away. And then, sure enough, the stewards got to have some problem with the race. We got to correct something. Now it's not a long lap penalty because of aggressive riding or ambitious riding. It's you need to drop one place. What is the difference here? To me, there is no difference between what what um, Morbidelli did, what Quattraro did, and what Benyaya did. To me, they are the same pass. Each and every one of them. Okay. Folks, I get it. Two of them resulted in accidents. I understand. But the idea of what they were trying to do is the same. So if you're judging it on the idea of what is aggressive riding or ambitious riding or riding that requires a penalty, you don't dish out the same penalty, which is really starting to upset me now. If the if that move is no different than what the other ones did, then Ben Yaya should have been going for a long lap. But we can't do that. <sighs> And of course, you know, he gets to take it right at the first turn and Ben Yaya's quickly sits up, looks back, lets Miller by, and here we go again. So now I'm thinking, well, boy, we just handed that race to KTM and Ben Yaya. Did, did you have something you want to put in there, Rich? I, or should I just continue down the path? Well, yeah, like a broken record. I mean, the, the other problem in all of this is the apparent lack of consistency with which these decisions are made. So... Have we mentioned about uh, Jack's pass on Martin? We haven't come to that yet, have we? I think uh, that comes uh, in a moment. I I'm, think I'm that think, was was that that was earlier. That was that was early. I think that was earlier. At some point in the race, didn't have Jack put a really hard move on Jorge Martin going into the final. Uh, is it the Jorge Lorenzo to now that final? But yeah, final left hander. Yeah, yeah. mm -hmm. Yes, a, you know, a really hard move. They both went way wide, and Martin, I don't think, was very happy with the move. Um. My understanding, and again, this is where I'm sort of coming from and saying that I think Freddie and the stewards are applying the penalties correctly. It's just that the rules are way too complicated. So I think their argument there is, although that move by Miller on Martin was aggressive and certainly ambitious, you know, <laughs> but that that most sinful of things in a race to, to make an ambitious side, you know, move, he didn't touch. Martin's bike because Martin picked it up because he saw him coming exactly but contact no, how... contact wasn't made when Banyaya went past Miller at the end of the back straight contact albeit light was made and that's why he had to drop 
a position, whereas Miller's move on Martin went without a second glance. Now, let me, the thing that came to my mind, and I can't think which riders it was, but in the Moto3 race in Argentina a little earlier in the season, there were several collisions, taps, you know, as passes were taking place at the end of the very, very long back straight there. One person had to do a long lap for it, and then it's exactly the same thing happened a few laps later, and it went absolutely... Sasaki on Almanza. Almanza was definitely involved in one of them. Yeah. Yeah. That one is the one where we complained that I can't remember which the first one was. Well, Sasaki should get the same penalty as the other person. One resulted in a penalty and then exactly the same incident as I saw it just got forgotten about in the melee of everything else that was going on. It's like, well, you can't apply it on one incident and then not apply it on another. So, again, this all just leads me back to the same position, which is too many rules. Uh, you know, and then there's just this maelstrom of activity and mistakes then start to happen. <laughs> Reasons for decisions aren't made clear to people by the riders and the teams and the fans and so on. And and yeah, we just arrived back at our favourite A word, which is anarchy, which is how yeah. it feels at the moment, really. But yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're particularly peeved oh, with I the am. Miller on Banyaya uh, and Miller on Martin example. Yeah. But I believe it's just in one case there was a little bit of contact and in the other there wasn't albeit the contact was avoided by the rider that would have otherwise been hit in that ambitious overtake so yeah I'm, it's it's just a it's a rabbit hole oh yeah it's what it is yeah i'm not going to waste any more time on it i think my feelings on this are clear yeah. <laughs> we shall move on to this the interesting thing was that it's lap 17 laps to go when benyaya has to drop one position back to miller it takes him, it takes him, uh, eight full laps before he finally puts a clean pass on Miller to then track down Bender. So we are, were we given a better show by the penalty? I don't know. I don't care. I don't care if Benyaya would have rocketed up to Bender and passed him two seconds later. It, the it's the principle of what they're calling penalties and whether there's contact or not contact or whether a rider can avoid the contact slippery slope rabbit hole moving on i promised you i wouldn't do that i'm sorry folks (laughs) (laughs) but darko was down and bezeki was down again it's like that um we learned during the race that Oliveira did have the dislocated shoulder five to go it was game on between benyai and bender they went at each other hammer and tong benyai got by with three to go I, he did that at turn 13. I really thought Bender had something or would at least have taken a chance at the last corner. And he looked like he had been you know, lined up to it. And I played it over and over after I read that. Well, let's finish this off. Benyaya wins. Miller come, or Bender comes in second. Then Miller. Then Martin, Aspargaro, and Marquez. Okay, that's how it works. What got me was... Afterwards, Brad Bender said, I didn't take a go at Ben Yaya on the last corner because I was afraid I was going to get a penalty. And there, ladies and gentlemen, you have the problem summed up in one set of words from Jim just there. That is what we're talking about. So we We don't get a race. We were robbed of what could have been a, a spectacular pass and finish or an incredible accident with a surprise winner being Jack Miller. Okay, I don't want the accident. I'm not rooting for the accident here, people. 
I'm rooting for somebody who wants to go for it. That's what I'm rooting for. Because how many, okay, let me go back. Let's go back to Laguna Seca circa 2009. Casey, I think it's in 2009. Casey Stoner, Valentino Rossi, the corkscrew. By the letter of the law, Rossi should be, he was exceeded track limits. Rossi should have been given a long lap penalty. Oh, yeah. Am I not right? Yet we yeah. look at that race and go, that was one of the greatest races we've ever seen. Because it happened. Two people were allowed to race. Well, and quite honestly, uh, I don't think Stoner was actually mad about it. And let's say uh, Rossi on Gibbonale at the final turn in Jerez. Rossi on Lorenzo at the final turn in Jerez. And interestingly, you know, when it comes to the promo material for the uh, the sport, though, Dawn is still dining out on those sorts of incidents at the same time that they're being legislated out. So, yeah, I just don't that the, the kind of the different roads that different parts of the sport in terms of governance are on is very, very stark at the moment. And this um, I can't remember the name of this new guy that's come in from the was it the NFL or yeah or, NBA or uh, he, NBA, NBA. Uh, he's got a hell of a challenge on his hands to try and figure out how the hell to reconcile these two competing directions because that is not an easy problem to solve it seems to me no um in terms of selling this sport as a spectacle and, the, and as something that people would invest in in terms of their the riders that they like because if if your rider does a you know a pretty decent overtake and then it's told to sort of give up the place and maybe loses the race or whatever well that's not a way to engage new fans if they're sort of wavering between this and some other spectacle they're gonna think well why would i follow that that's the problem and yeah as you say jim i mean binder summed it up didn't he yeah he would have probably gone for that move yeah. but you know if he cocked it up or copped a five second penalty or something because god knows what penalty he would have got i mean who, who knows he might have been told to go and wash the dishes for the next week or something i don't know but you know, he could have lost second place. That's the point. You know, it might have been a time penalty because he obviously couldn't serve a long lap at the end of a race. So he might have been, yeah, docked five, ten seconds, whatever, and he might have ended up and lost a shed load of points. So he just decided best not to risk it. Yeah. Which is a sad, I, sad yeah. sort of way to end the race, really. Sad way to end this race review, too, because yeah. we'll move to the points. Uh, because of all that, uh, ben Yaya now goes to the top because Bezeki is down. He didn't score. I think he scored one point by default. Bender has now, due to his success in the sprint races and now some success in the actual race, he's jumped himself to third, uh, only three points shy of Bezeki. And then Miller, the other KTM, is right there as well. I mean, there's a bit of a gap there. There's like 13 points gap, I think, between the two there. So it's definitely looking good for the ktm boys at least as of right now i mean anything can happen long season to go but that is where we are rich i think who you're kind of your two or three i mean i think it's pretty obvious but who are your kind of top three in the championship as things stand at the moment who looks like they're the ones that are really going forward with this now for me well obviously ben yaya he's going to be there right bender's going to be there yeah I, I, I don't know if Baseki has staying power. I, I don't think he does. He can't afford more mis- any more mistakes. He can't afford mm. no points in a sprint and no points in a race. That's for sure. Miller, bit of a wild child. I mean, Jack could get on a tear, do a couple of races, jump right back in this. But if I got to pick three, I, I guess you got to. I guess you got to put Miller as the favorite in there. 
I know one thing. If the KTMs find a little more edge grip, ooh, tasty, tasty racing there, folks. Because that's where Ducati won. Ducati won because they were able to preserve the tire and edge grip longer than the um, KTMs did. So just a small tweak here or there. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with, with that three. I mean, I, for me, as things stand right in the here and now, I mean, let's be honest, a Honda, forget it, Yamaha, highly unlikely to even win a race, let alone... I mean, funny enough, Quattro is not that far back in the points. He's like 40-odd points behind the leader at the minute, which is not that big of a gap. But yeah, He's not even in the top 10. But, but his competitive position with that bike and that team at the minute is nowhere close enough to being, you know... a championship troubler aprilia yeah. for all the promise you know probably arguably their best hope is you know continually being torpedoed out of races at the moment that's Raul, who i would put as a third if Oliveira was not yeah. torpedoed twice i would totally put Oliveira, and i'm sure Oliveira would be somewhere in these you, yeah, I'm, I'm convinced that he absolutely would be jim yeah i mean raul fernandez okay now he's got got another issue with his arm but again he hasn't really shown any sort of signs of you know, the Moto2 rider that he was a couple of seasons ago. Um, and Maverick and Aleish, well, yeah. Like what? <laughs> like waiting for the second coming, isn't it? For the, one of those guys to suddenly make good on the bike. So who does that leave? Well, it's Ducatis, isn't it? But Banya is obviously the, the guy that's going to... I mean, Bastianini, because of his accident. No, I mean, there's no Bastianini way Bastianini would back. be there, right? I'm sure he would be in the running, yeah, but clearly he's not going to mount a title challenge from here. I think that's highly unlikely anyway. So KTM are the, are the ones with form, aren't they? And absolutely pushing like hell. Uh, so Banyar is going to have a job on his hands, I think, with the combined efforts of Binder and Miller. And Miller, okay, I know he had a wretched Cota weekend in terms of crashes, but he's looked solid so far this year. Uh, and most of his career on the Ducati, you were always worried that he was going to tuck the front and just chuck it up the road. And he doesn't look like that on the KTM. So against all of my expectations, because I was very doubtful that that move was going to be fruitful. It looks like it's going to be, I think. So, yeah, it's, let's, uh, what's the next race? Is it Le Mans? Le Mans. Yeah, okay. The 100th Grand Prix. And, you know, Le Mans, oh, so it is, yeah. And Le Mans could be, you know, famously inclement the weather there so that might throw a little bit of a curveball in yeah for people as well yeah looking forward to that all right let's wrap this up so that's the race review from her and all the news and everything folks uh questions comments anything send it to motopod at motopodcast.com if you want to get a hold of me and rich directly i am at moto rgv both instagram and twitter and it's richard jowett at instagram and twitter as well don't forget to follow the official motopod instagram page and the official motopod twitter as well for late breaking stuff if we can possibly figure it up and get it to you we'll let you know yep. until we come back after le mans for another race review everybody ride safe cheers everyone until next time okay i'm ready if you are yes i am ready and we are we are so 728. You stole my Boeing number, you bastard. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs>